0: My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. If you're new to us this morning, we're glad you're here. And we want to welcome you and encourage you and invite you to attend our Easter service. It takes place on Sunday on Easter. It's a sunrise service. So we're going to gather together to watch the physical sun rise as we celebrate the sun who has been resurrected from the dead. It's not the same beach as we were at the last couple of years, but it's right nearby. It's directly across from Mercato Mall in Jumeirah, off Beach Road. You you have a map in your bulletins. You have a map on the invite card that was in your seat. It's also a breakfast potluck. So if you're able to bring some food to share, please do. And we will gather around uh, that table in, in fellowship on Sunday morning. Well, the text praying read for us just now doesn't really sound like a Good Friday text, does it? Not exactly. For those of you who are visiting today, or maybe this is your first time in a Christian worship gathering, today is called Good Friday. It's a day that marks the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross. You need to know that no one took his life. No one took Jesus' life. He gave it. It wasn't an accidental death. It wasn't an unplanned and hopeless death. There was a purpose. There was a problem that needed to be resolved. Every person ever born anywhere is alienated from God. All of us. Every single one of us in this room are sinners. We naturally reject God. We desire to live apart from him. And that's a big problem because God is the holy creator of the universe. And his very purpose for making us was to glorify him and to enjoy a relationship with him. So to reject God is no small thing. It's no minor problem. It's not like burning the food you were cooking for dinner or hurting the feelings of a friend. Our sin is the sin of the created against the Creator. Now, the Bible's clear that the only just punishment is one that fits the crime. We've offended an infinitely holy God. The punishment must then be an infinite punishment of infinite measure eternal death, eternal judgment. This is the judgment that hangs over every single one of us, apart from divine intervention. But here's why Good Friday is good news to each of us. It's that through the death of Christ, one can have forgiveness of sins. This is good news. This is the greatest news. We, on our own, we couldn't create, couldn't find, couldn't manufacture, couldn't make a remedy for our sin. No good work can cancel out our bad works. No good work can can defeat a sin nature and erase it. But the good news is God did it for us. Jesus, God in the flesh, he took upon himself the sins of his people as an atoning sacrifice. It's what we've been singing in our songs this morning. Hallelujah for the cross, because Jesus on the cross bore the penalty that we deserved. He faced God's wrath. He became a substitute and died in the place of sinners. Oh, friends, this is great news. And then on the third day, displaying that God had approved of the sacrifice, the son, this Jesus, rose from the dead, bodily, physically, literally. Now, friends, if you were invited by someone to come today, this is the first time you're with us, I want you to know that Jesus is the solution to your greatest problem. That your greatest problem is, is not that you need a new job or a visa. It's not that you need a bigger bank account or better health. It's to be delivered from the sin that separates you from God. From the God who created you and made you to be in relationship with him. The words of, of Jesus are clear in the Bible on how to be saved. It's that you turn and acknowledge that you are a sinner. That you have sinned against God. That you have no way to save yourself and you trust in him to save you. And he will save you. He will relate to you and he will give you everlasting life in heaven. Oh, friend, repent and believe. I pray that you would do that today. Maybe you're here and you're already a Christian. Maybe you're looking for a church. Maybe you picked this weekend uh, to check out this church. And your, your question that you're asking today is, well, what kind of church is this? Well, I can answer that in one sentence. Our church is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what we're all about. It's about the gospel. and There's no greater mission we have than to see people come to know Christ and to grow in their relationship with him. We want, by God's grace, to make disciples of all nations, which is why at our church, if you look around even right now, you'll see that we have the nations gathered together in Christ. Now here's why we don't have to stop our teaching series for Good Friday if we don't want to. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but the reason we don't have to is because at Redeemer, we celebrate Good Friday every Friday. We don't need a special Friday to remind us that Jesus Christ died for us. Good Friday is every Friday for us because we always sing songs not about our own emotions or feelings, but about Jesus and about what He has done for us. Every Friday we pray prayers that are centered on Christ and His sacrifice for us. Every Friday we preach sermons that are focused on Jesus being our substitute for our sin. We pray prayers, we preach sermons centered on Jesus, and our centrality of the gospel means that we worship Jesus for who he is and what he has done every single day. And this is what healthy churches are all about. Healthy churches keep Jesus front and center every Friday and every day. This is why, if you're here and you're visiting us and this, this sounds good, you want to be a part of a church that focuses on Jesus and the gospel and doesn't focus on programs or events or anything flashy but on the gospel itself, then we encourage you to keep coming. We encourage you to consider joining us as a member. In fact, we want to make it as easy as possible because we know that, as Daniel said, many of you work Saturdays and many of you travel and, and many of you are, uh, are cabin crew and you can't make consecutive Fridays. Well, we're going to put the entire membership class in two weeks on a Friday. You can Find information in the bulletin from two to nine with a nice dinner break in between. We're gonna run through everything about our church, what we believe as a church, what our mission is as a church. You're gonna to get to meet elders of the church and, and hear why membership is important. So we, we urge you if you're looking for a church and you want a church that focuses on Jesus and the gospel, please come and join us. Come and be with us. When if you are just joining us today, you could see from the screens that we've been studying the letter of First Timothy. And we've been seeing that Paul is answering the question, what is a healthy church? Paul's writing a letter to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, and he's showing Timothy, he's showing the Ephesians, and he's showing us what does a healthy church look like? And the question Paul's going to answer today is, who are the under-shepherds who lead Christ's church? Christ is the head of the body. But God has ordained human leadership in local churches. What do these leaders look like? Well, we'll see the answer And the main point of the sermon is this. If you're taking notes, here's the main overarching point this morning. Healthy churches are led by aspiring men... ...who have godly character... ...lead their families well... ...teach the Bible faithfully... ...have a good reputation... And are spiritually mature. Let me read that again because that is the longest point in the history of the sermon-making universe. Let me me repeat that for you. It's a little long today. Got a little excited. (laughs) Healthy churches are led by aspiring men who have godly character, lead their families well, teach the Bible faithfully, have a good reputation, and are spiritually mature. You didn't get all that, I'm going to break that down in a bit in the sermon. Now the words the Bible uses for these men are elder, overseer, and pastor. These words are often flip-flop for one another. In Titus 1, you see the words elder and overseer are used in the same paragraph to describe the same person. Philippians addresses the overseers and deacons. Luke also uses the term elder and overseer, to describe the office and function of the Ephesian leader. So those three words, they're used interchangeably in Scripture. They're talking about the same role. Now the term elder is the most common in the New Testament, so we're gonna re- I'm going to refer to it in the sermon today to describe that one leadership role. Now implied in this text is that churches should actually have elders. Now it may sound like, it may sound like common sense to you, but some churches don't have elders, now the problem is, the Bible is very clear regarding God's plan for church leadership. Churches should have elders. Churches that don't are disobedient to God's word. It's also clear from the text that elders are to be men. Paul says elders, if married, are to be husbands of one wife. The last passage we studied two weeks ago in First Timothy chapter 2 said men are to lead in the church. But it's important not just that a church has elders... It's important not just that they are male, as if uh, men in general is the requirement. Simply having certain chromosomes doesn't give you authority in the church. God's design is that the right men be in leadership. Now, I'll be honest. I thought the last passage was difficult as we dealt with some difficult textual issues. But preaching this text is difficult for me because I'm becoming increasingly aware that I'm not perfect at these things. I've had to confess my own struggles as I've been meditating on these characteristics for the past two weeks. In fact, none of our elders are perfect. Elders aren't superheroes of the faith with superpowers, but men who are sinners saved by grace. We're all works in progress by the grace of God. But at the same time, to be qualified as an elder, there are qualifications to be met. Well, before we jump into those qualifications, let me answer some questions as to why this passage is applicable to everyone, and why you shouldn't fall asleep during this sermon this week, or any week for that matter. To the current elders, how's your life? Does it match up to Paul's requirements? Are there any areas that you and I need to confess of or repent of? To the Christian men in this congregation, are you aspiring to be an elder? We need more qualified men who will step up and shepherd and love this flock. Does your life match up to these characteristics? You know, as D.A. Carson has famously said, this list is remarkable for being unremarkable. It really is. It's interesting because apart from being able to teach, all these characteristics mentioned in this text are encouraged of all believers. We should all strive to these things. And so the women in this congregation aspire to these qualities of godliness as well. And esteem these qualities. Encourage them in the men around you. In your home, in your community group, in the church. And wives, I'm sure you'll see ways your husband is not quite there yet as we walk through the text. You might be thinking during the sermon, wow, I'm glad my husband is hearing this. And at some point that I make, you'll think it needs an exclamation point, and you'll be tempted to engage in a bit of elbow church, you know, kind of silently nudging your husband to make sure he's listening to me. I can assure you from personal experience that this is not good for your marriage. So no nudges, no, did you catch that, honey? Take good notes right here. No, keep on preaching to Brother Dave. Well, maybe, maybe none of that. Maybe you might think it, but stop there. For the single women in this church, take note of these characteristics because these characteristics are of the type of man you want to marry. They are the standard of a man that you want to pledge your life to. Well, for everyone in this church, churches and organizations often rise and fall on the quality of leadership. If we don't have godly men leading this church, then our whole church is at stake. False teaching can creep in. Chaos could ensue. Well, first step in protecting the church is to know who your elders are. So if you, if you have a bulletin this morning, if you want to just flip to page 10 and 11, I think it's where the crease is, so just flip open to pages 10 and 11, and you'll, you'll see who our elders are. You'll see that we have 10 elders in this church that God in his grace has raised up. You'll know that the first four on the left-hand column are staff elders. Which means that we work full time for the church as our employment. The other six, David Lawrence on the bottom, and then Brian Parks, Frank Sampson, Tom Samuel, Max Stiles, and Nissen Matthew on the right hand page, are called lay elders. They have jobs outside the church. It means that they serve above and beyond their job in ministry for the church. It's, it's ministry uh, outside of their job. And we together as a church, we need to guard this elder office. We need to pray for these men. We ask that you would pray for us. And ask that God would raise up more aspiring men who have godly character, who lead their families well, who teach the Bible faithfully, who have a good reputation and are spiritually mature. Let's take a moment um, and look at the six components from the main point that I mentioned earlier. And let's break it down even further. So I have six kind of subpoints. We just want to unpack that main point ...that I read earlier. So the first thing we notice there in verse 1... ...is that an elder must aspire to the office. The opening phrase, here's a trustworthy saying... ...alerts us to the importance of the elder's office. This isn't something that's forced upon him. It's not done half-heartedly. It's an office for one whose heart is set on it... ...and who takes it seriously. Hebrews thirteen seventeen shows us the seriousness of this role... Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. As elders of this church, we will take account before God for how well we've shepherded this church. This is scary, and this is a most sobering verse. This is not a ministry to take lightly. It's not a thing just to say, well, I'll do it in my free time, or I'll do it when I feel like it. There is an accounting before God. It's also a lot of work. It's not a well-paying job for our lay elders. It pays exactly zero dirhams an hour for quite a lot of hours, and that's pretty low pay. No, our lay elders of this church are quite amazing. After long days at work, they spend their nights and weekends meeting with people in this church. Counseling the hurting, leading community groups, discipling men, preparing to teach, hosting people in their homes, gathering in late, late, late night elder meetings, responding to important emails, not to mention all the other prayer time and thinking time that goes into making big decisions for the church. Now I'm so grateful for these men, I'm so grateful for them. And the great thing about them is, is, they, is that they would never, ever say that the sacrifice to serve is not worth it. And they do it out of love for God and out of love for the church. They aspire to it. They desire to do it. They love doing it. Well, the second thing we see in our passage is that an elder has godly character. He's got to aspire to the task, but then he's also, he has to have godly character. And Paul's going to lay out all kinds of things. And you'll notice as I go through it that he says nothing about going to Bible college or seminary. He says nothing about an elder's CV, but about his character. It's very interesting. And the first character quality in verse 2 is that an elder is above reproach. This is really an umbrella category for everything Paul mentions. It's the kind of person you'd be shocked if you heard anything negative about. It's not that he's perfect, or else we'd all be disqualified. But it means he has a reputation for being a godly man. Later in verse 2, an elder is to be sober minded. He's alert. He's vigilant. He's able to think clearly. He notices spiritual dangers around him and he's on guard. He's also self controlled. I and mean, think about it. How can a man lead others if he doesn't have full command of himself? And this is your diet and your exercise. This is your discipline not to waste time on useless clicks on the internet or screen time. An elder watches his words. He's careful what he says. An elder is pure. He has control over his thought life. He isn't addicted to pornography and lustful thoughts. He's self-controlled to get up in the morning. He's dependable for whatever it is he has to do for his work and family responsibilities. He's also a respectable man. Thabiti Anyebrile says that he's the kind of man who, if you hear something bad about him... You know, there's likely nothing wrong with that particular elder, but instead there's a problem with the person talking. He's respected. I'm going to come back to the next two things, but in verse 3, Paul says he's not a drunkard. A drunkard is one who's addicted to alcohol. It's one who drinks too much, so he's not sober-minded. He's drunk. Now, it doesn't say that elders can't drink alcohol. Paul is saying that an elder can't get drunk. It's a big difference there. The issue is how are elders going to keep watch over the doctrine and over the life of the church if he can't think straight? If he's addicted to alcohol. He's also not a violent but a gentle man. An elder's not a bully. He doesn't lose his temper and lash out on people. He doesn't get into verbal and physical fights. He never, ever, ever, ever lays his hand on his wife. He isn't easily angered. What if you saw me at Al Guerrero Center after the church service and I'm just standing there yelling at my wife, just nose to nose, just going at her? Or if you went to a restaurant and you saw me humiliating the server because they messed up my order. I mean, could you follow my lead? Could you listen to me preach on Friday morning? Or what if you drove up to my flat one day and you saw me standing outside there with my computer bag and I'm just banging it against the wall over and over again because I'm so angry that my computer's broken? What would you think of me? Well well, you may praise God that my arms are healed from disability and shout out, hallelujah, praise Jesus. Pastor's okay. But you'd also wonder, has Pastor Dave lost his mind? What is he doing? No, elders are to be gentle, are to be kind, are to be patient. You now I love this about Nissen Matthew. Nissen is an incredible leader and a fantastic teacher, but he's also one of the most humble and gentle men that I know. You know, when I'm with Nissen, I see reflected in him the gentle but strong leadership that we see exhibited by our Savior Jesus in the Scriptures. And we're not violent, we're gentle. And an elder is also not quarrelsome. You see that there in the text. An elder isn't known for arguing with people. He's not on Facebook late at night picking fights with people. A quarreling man is the last man that you want on your elder team. I heard of uh, one church where one of the elders uh, was so quarrelsome that he made it his role, his chief aim, to argue with every single thing that came up from other elders in elder meetings. He just, he just made it his goal to argue with them and to, to, to try to end their conversation. Even upon the senior pastor being hired and arriving at the church, he went to this pastor's house and told him that he didn't want them there and he voted against him coming. Now, an elder needs to be okay with not getting his way. He has to let some of his desires go and submit to and trust the counsel of the rest of the elders. Well, at the end of verse 3, another thing, an elder is not a lover of money. Well, you say, Pastor, this is an easy one, this is not a problem, I'm free of the love of money because I am broke. I don't have any money to love. No, friend, that's not what Paul is saying here. A poor man can love money just as much as a rich man. Maybe more. Paul doesn't say an elder needs to be rich or an elder needs to be poor. What matters is not how much money a man has, but how much affection he has for the money. Does the man have an unhealthy preoccupation with money and what it can buy? And whether you have or have not, don't set your heart on money. I love this about Tom Samuel on our elder team Jesus has given him a heart of generosity. He intentionally lives below his means so he can give money away to ministry. He does business to help Christians, and he gives with great joy. Now, the church is to be led by men like Tom, who treasure Jesus more than money. Elders are to be men of godly character. Now, as we walk through those characteristics, you may have noticed that it doesn't say you need an IQ of 160 doesn't say you need to be able to bench press 100 kilograms to be an elder. doesn't say that an elder walks into the room and the light of his glory just blinds everyone. And you're not so holy that people just bow down to you. You don't have Leviticus memorized backwards. Well, an elder is to be a godly man. That's what Paul seems to be concerned about here. There's a third thing we see in our text. Third, an elder leads his family well. Leads his family well. We see two things about this point in our passage. First, in verse 2, he's the husband of one wife. I still smile when I think of the first pastor's training I did over in India. It was a few years ago. David Lawrence and I went to northern India to be with Rajesh Gautam. Now, Rajesh was one of our pastoral interns last year, and we went to visit to do some training. And I remember being surprised at the introductions of the pastors before the training I did. It went something like this Hi, my name is Deepak, and I have one wife and six kids. My name is George, and I have one wife and three kids. My, wife, my name is Shaker, and I have one wife and six kids. And it went on and on like that. At one point, I even just stopped them, and I just laughed and said, Wow, it's really good that you pastors have only one wife. <laughs> and they just kind of stared at me in silence like I was crazy. It was information I had never received before in an introduction. I thought it was great. I thought it was great that everybody made it clear to me that they've got only one wife. Now, of course, later I learned it was only because of grammar That in in Hindi, you don't often put that a particle, but you put one instead to communicate something that you have a wife. You have one wife. Now, it still makes a great point, doesn't it? (laughs) That elders and Christians who are married men have only one wife, right? That's what the scriptures seem to say. So what does it mean here in the passage that an elder is to be a husband of one wife. Is it meant to exclude unmarried men from the office? Well, this is unlikely. The author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus, was single. Paul himself was single. Paul speaks highly of those single in ministry. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he says it's an advantage. Paul says being single is a great thing in ministry. You have lots of advantages time, ability to, to minister. Paul seems to think pretty highly of singles ministering. Now, the text literally reads here a one woman man. Now, if you're single, the question to ask is this. Do you demonstrate a one-woman attitude? Do you treat the sisters in the church with absolute purity? You're not known for dating or leading on or flirting with different women. You treat all women with dignity and respect. Well, the text also doesn't seem to forbid a man to be an elder if he's remarried after his wife dies, Romans 7 Paul insists there's nothing dishonorable in marrying a Christian spouse after the first one passes away. Now divorce is a bit more difficult. Can someone who is divorced be an elder? I would say maybe. Maybe not. I think the issue here in the text is monogamy and faithfulness. Where divorce would disqualify someone as if their credibility is gone. What are the details of the divorce? When did it happen? Was it before he was a believer? If not, did it have biblical grounds? Was he faithful to his spouse? Now on, a flip, on the flip side, one man could be married to one woman for his entire life and not be qualified as a one-woman man. You get that? Paul's saying if an elder is married, he is to be faithful to his wife in the same way that Christ is faithful to his church. Wholeheartedly. He has to be a one woman man. It's interesting as Paul goes through these qualifications for, for elders, it's interesting and noteworthy that the qualifications are all for him. There's no qualifications for his wife. That's because there's not an official office in the church of the pastor's wife. A pastor or elder's wife is just like every other lady in the church. Our prayer for elders' wives is that they would love Jesus. That they would love their husbands and support him in his role. That they would love their family. That they would honor God in all that they do, both in the home or if they work. And that they would be a healthy church member. And that's it. There are no first ladies of the Redeemer Church of Dubai. This is what we ask of all wives in the church. Well, does this passage mean that an elder must have children? Again, this would seem odd if single men can be elders. And in verse 4, children is plural. If you take that argument, if that was the case, you'd be saying that an elder needs to have at least two children. You'd think Paul would say that if if that was the requirement. It seems awfully specific. Paul is likely writing here with regard to the most common situation in society. Most elders, the majority of elders, will be married and will have children. The point is, married men, are you committed to your one wife? How do you treat your wife when no one else sees you but God? This is important because who you are when no one sees you but God, that's who you are. No woman has ever said in the history of the universe, yes, my husband is loving, he is considerate, he's hospitable, he is gentle, and he is kind at home with me. But I know he's just faking it. I know he doesn't really mean it. No, that's not true because who you are at home behind closed doors is who you are. You may be able to fake it for an hour at a church service on Friday. You may be able to fake it behind your cubicle uh, during the week at work, but who you are at home, that's who you are. Who you are with your wife is who you are. Who you are when no one else is looking but God. That's who you are, friend. Are you committed? Are you devoted wholeheartedly and faithfully to your one wife? Is the wife, is your wife the recipient of your affection? Is she your best friend? Do you stay away from looking at other women on the street or on the internet? Do you daily refrain from taking all the thousands of baby steps toward a full-blown emotional affair with someone at work or someone online? Do you pursue your wife in the areas of spiritual, emotional, and physical intimacy? I had a visiting pastor in my home a couple weeks ago, and he told me that before their church brings a man into eldership, Uh, The elders will ask the candidate's wife, how's your love life? Are you two physically intimate with each other often? Is your husband leading you in this area? Is your husband leading you spiritually? Are you growing in your relationship with God under his leadership? Is he pursuing you? Do you feel loved by him? Is he gentle and tender with you? Now what he's getting at is, is this elder candidate a one-woman man? I love how Frank Sampson epitomizes this character quality so wonderfully. His love and tenderness and devotion for his wife Sneha is so beautiful, so special, and so sweet. He speaks so highly of her. He loves her with sweet compassion and seasons when she's struggling with health or illness. He's patient and kind with her. care for her overwhelms her. I see the same thing in Glenn Jones. His support and love toward Donnie has been an example to me ever since we started this church. Elders are one woman men. Well, the second thing about the elder's home and his home life is that he manages his family well. You see that there in the text The same word for manage here is the word that describes the task of leading the church in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. An elder should be leading in his home. If he can't manage his family, how can he take care of the church? If you can't do it in your home with a few people, how can you do it in the larger arena with all of God's people? And he must do so with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. An elder's children respect and honor their father. The children reflect the character of their father's leadership. They're not out-of-control kids or youth. This doesn't mean that an elder's children are super holy angels. They're still sinners. They mess up like other kids. The text also doesn't mean that an elder's children have to be believers. The text doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say a man, man can only be an elder when his children are old enough to be verified as Christians and become members of the church. And grace doesn't run in the genes anyway. Can, you can shape your kids' lives, but you can't convert them. You can't force them to believe they're not automatically Christians because you are. Now, an elder is involved in the lives of his children. He manages the household into a sense of order and love and tenderness, and his children respond well to him. An elder loves and leads his family well. Well, there's a fourth thing we see, fourth part of our main overarching point that I mentioned in the beginning. Fourth thing we see about elders in our pastors is that they teach the Bible faithfully. They're able to teach. This is one of the characteristics that causes an elder to stand out. This is different from preaching. An elder may be able to preach, but it's never set forth as a requirement. But he must teach, he must be able to handle God's word and teach in discipling relationships, in small groups, in classes. This assumes that the man has a good command of scripture. He studies the Bible. And leaders are always readers. Leaders love the Bible, consistently grow in their knowledge of the scriptures. And they're able to communicate what they're learning with others. John Calvin once said, An elder must know how to apply God's word to the profit of the people. I love how we're so blessed with elders at Redeemer who are so gifted at teaching God's word. I love it when I'm not preaching, so I get to just sit and sit under God's word proclaimed so faithfully. I I love this about Philip Van Steenberg, who oversees all of our Friday morning classes. He teaches on Wednesday nights at the Limeridian Training Room in Garhood, a Bible study in the book of Ephesians. He does it faithfully and thoroughly as they walk through verse by verse by verse through the letter to the Ephesians. He teaches our interns faithfully with a three-hour meeting every Wednesday to develop them and to raise up future leaders. I also think of Max Styles and his unique ability to communicate God's truth. He's a gift to us. He preaches the gospel with great passion and clarity, and it pierces our hearts. An elder must be able to teach the Bible. Well, there's a fifth thing we see in our text fifth, an elder has a good reputation with those outside the church. An elder has a good reputation. And Paul again will mention two things under this category. First in verse two, elders are hospitable. The word translated hospitable literally means a love for strangers This is ultimately what biblical hospitality is. It's a love for Christians you don't know. It's a love for outsiders, for non-Christians, for those in the community, and for those who would never, ever come inside this room. Being hospitable is not that you're good at making cookies or that you consistently win best dish at our picnic potlucks, as awesome as both of those things are, and greatly appreciated by your pastor and others. Those of you, you who brought good food to Zabil Park last week, you know who you are. And most importantly, God knows who you are. But if you didn't, you have another opportunity on Sunday morning for our potluck (laughs) picnic to redeem yourselves. But Paul's not talking here about whether you won the Dubai biryani contest last year. What he's getting at is this Do you feed biryani to the security guard who's hungry outside your building? Do you invite people from other nationalities into your home for dinner? Or even spend the night if they don't have shelter? Do you reach out to strangers with food, with encouragement, with friendship, with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Hospitality is not fundamentally about your cooking or opening up your home. It's more about opening up your heart to others. I love seeing this in Jason Barris' life. His home is constantly filled with strangers, new people to them. Their community group stays until midnight each week. Young married couples, singles, visitors are always in and out of their home. Jason's always pouring out his life for the sake of other men's growth. Jason's wife, Bev, is always meeting with other women, and her support is a major reason Jason's able to be so hospitable with his time and with their home. David and Chris Lawrence also epitomize this in our church. They have several members of our church living with them. Their dinner table looks like a church potluck every night. Multiple nationalities just sitting together around the dinner table eating with one another. New people are always over at their house. They incorporate the strangers around them into their life. It's who they are. Hospitality is not about having a big house, but about a big heart. You let people into your life. I mean, David and Chris Lawrence sent out three of their five children to university, but if you go into their house today, they filled the space up with Indians and Filipinos and Americans and Africans who have been incorporated into their home and into their life. No hospitality is inconvenient but it shows the world something about Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate host. He is the ultimate host. He's the host who truly gave us his life. He's the host who died for us so that we could have his life. And the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. It says that his son Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. You can't be a more cheerful giver than Jesus. He is the one who can give you and will give you the grace you need to love others, to give of your life to strangers, to others, to those who don't look like you, to those you don't know yet, to those who are in need. Well, the second thing we see is that an elder must be well thought of by outsiders. Outsiders must think well of you. What do people in your workplace think of you? If we asked your boss, would he or she say you're a dependable worker? Do your employees think you're a gracious and loving man? These lights are just a wake-up call if any of you have fallen asleep this morning. This is the time of the sermon, where we just want to wake you up every single Friday. I see you in the back. If you think I don't see you, I see you, and God sees you right now. You must be well thought of by outsiders. What would the woman in your workplace say about you? Are you kind? Are they worried you're going to compromise their integrity or purity? What about the watchman at your building? The baristas in your favorite coffee shop? Your next door neighbor? The person driving in the lane next to you? That one's convicting, isn't it? (laughs) What would that person say about you? You know, David Platt, the author of Radical, a friend of ours and a man who's preached from this pulpit, uh, he had his old church do something very interesting when they had elder candidates. When they had a group of men who were up for eldership, what they would do is they would actually take out a big advert in the local newspaper. And they would put the pictures of each of the men in that newspaper and information about those men. And they would say at the bottom, if anyone in the community has any reason that these men should not be an elder in a church, please let us know. Wow. That's a potentially scary idea for some of us men, isn't it? But it's actually not a bad idea. I mean, men, what would people say about you if we put your picture in the Gulf News? Maybe on the cover of the website with a place where people can write in their comments about you. Does that make you cringe? Does it make you nervous? Even a little bit? How are you known in the community? I love this about Brian Parks. The teachers and administration at his children's school love him and his wife, Joanne. They built a great reputation in the community. Brian also plays sports with a group of guys every week who aren't Christians. And he's known for being a good teammate with good character. So much so that one of the men on his team thought there would be nobody better to officiate his wedding ceremony than Brian. It's the kind of reputation he has in the community. This is so important so that an elder doesn't fall into disgrace. Do you see that there in the text? That he doesn't fall into a snare of the devil. Now, a snare is a trap. An elder with a bad reputation outside the church leads to his ruin and the ruin of the church. Well, finally, there's a sixth and final qualification we see for elders in verse 6. Sixth, an elder is spiritually mature. He's not a recent convert. A new Christian is not ready to oversee the church because he hasn't endured the wintry trials of the spiritual life. Later in 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, Paul urges Timothy not to be hasty in laying hands on a man to ordain him for leadership. The Bible's not concerned about biological age of an elder, but it's very concerned with the spiritual age of an elder. We don't rush into leadership because we want to protect them from falling into the condemnation of the devil. Do you see that warning there? This seems to mean the judgment given out for the sin of pride. Pride would be a temptation of a new convert being elevated in leadership too quickly. Most people emphasize the word recent here, or the word new, and it is important. But I think it's imperative that... The elders of churches and the elders of our church are actually converts in the first place. If you're not a Christian, you can't lead a Christian church. Now, one of our church members, Rod McBoyle, sent me a, a video a couple weeks ago. And in this video, this preacher, this pastor, made the gospel very clear. He talked about the fact that our sins demand a blood sacrifice, he talked about the fact that Jesus came to be that sacrifice. I mean, great wonderful sermon until he said that in that in that very same sermon that this theology this gospel is an embarrassment to him he repudiated the gospel of Jesus Christ and he said this teaching is immoral and outdated he said that the gospel damages the church and no longer works that pastor elder is not converted he's not a christian he may have gone to seminary, but he's not going to heaven unless he believes the same gospel that Jesus proclaimed and the same gospel the disciples faithfully preached 2,000 years ago. Elders must be genuinely converted. They must repent of their sins. They must place their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. They must not think the cross is outdated, but that the cross is their only hope in the world. To be an elder, you must first be a Christian. You must be a good faithful Christian man. And this may surprise you, but there are elders and even senior pastors in the world who aren't Christians. Some television preachers, some TV preachers are not Christians. We want men who understand the gospel, men who are saved by the gospel, men who defend the true gospel, men who love Jesus. We want men who love Jesus Christ, men who have embraced the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you've listened to these qualifications and you realize this is not you. You realize that you're not a Christian. That you don't have a spiritual palate for the things of God. Friend, you need to repent. Your problem is you're human, you were born of Adam, and you need to jump races. You need to be of the last Adam. You need to be born again of the last Adam, Jesus, the one who died and the one who rose from the dead. You need to trust Jesus as your Savior and you need to to become a Christian today. There's no better day than right now to place your faith in Jesus to save you. Maybe you're here and you are a Christian and you'd like to be an elder one day. Maybe you're a man here and you're studying these characteristics and you're feeling that same weight that I'm feeling right now. Maybe you're sitting in your seat and you feel like a failure no friend none of us are perfect all of us need grace we need to look to jesus who is the true and better elder he's the ultimate elder who embodies these characteristics as daniel read for us earlier he is the chief shepherd he is the chief shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep This is why Good Friday is good news for us every Friday and every day. Friend, there is hope. So men, keep aspiring to be an elder. Take time this week to meditate on these characteristics. If you're married, I have an assignment for you. Go to your wife with your Bible and ask her to point out one or two of these characteristics that you most need to work on. And then take that to heart and work on them. Married women, pray that your husband would embody these characteristics. Single women, take time to read them again slowly and make this the standard from whom you want to marry. Church, pray through these characteristics and ask that God would raise up more elders who look like this. And pray for the current elders. Pray that we would love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pray that we would fight for purity, fight against greed and temptation that we would shepherd and lead our families well, that we would guard against false teaching, that we would shepherd this church in a manner pleasing to Christ. And let us all remember that healthy churches are led by aspiring men who have godly character, lead their families well, teach the Bible faithfully, have a good reputation, and are spiritually mature. To that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we celebrate Good Friday every Friday that it's good news for our weary souls every day. We thank you that the chief shepherd and the true and perfect elder laid down his life for us. Would you raise up more men who would follow Christ's example and would want to lay down their lives for the church? We pray this in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. Amen.